Father in heaven, uh, while it appears our fingers are nimble enough to open this book, uh, we know that it's alive, that it is a living word, the living word of God. So I pray that you would open our minds, our hearts, to hear, to listen, to receive, to trust, to believe, to follow. We know there's so much that causes us to be resistant to this word as it confronts us. And so I pray that you would overcome all that resistance so that you would be glorified by us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Acts and chapter 18. I want to begin with verse 18 and read through chapter 19, verse 7, please. Acts and chapter 18, verse 18. Hear the word of God. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Now remember, if we just catch us up in the midst of where we are in this narrative, um, Paul had been and was in Corinth uh, and he had met this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and stayed with them. So that's that's the relationship there. They're believers along with Paul in that place. Uh, at Sencria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, I won't deal with that just because it's just a sentence in there, but uh, Paul seemed to have taken a vow, perhaps an ancient Nazarite vow, uh, concerning something in his life. And so, um, so his hair had been cut, and so Luke lets us know that. Verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So so Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he leaves that place. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, Antioch was kind of Paul's home base. So you get the sense that now he's come full circle. He's taken his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and now he's taken his second missionary journey uh, with Silas. And I'm doing this because that's kind of the direction, at least on my map, that he went. And now he's back in Antioch. And so now as he leaves again, we mark out what would be for us as we're reading through Acts, his third journey. So he's, he's started from Antioch, came back, started from Antioch, came back. Now he's back and he's going to start out again. So verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so he's, he's going back in kind of a northwesterly uh, route, going back to, to, to revisit these places where he had been. Verse um, 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. I think in the New International Version, the word, therefore, is meanwhile, which is quite nice. 
if, if that's what it is there. If it isn't, then it's in my own head version. Uh, because this is kind of a subplot. Uh, you get the feeling Priscilla and Aquila are back in Ephesus. Uh, Paul's gone on, and now he's on this little journey of his own. And, and kind of while all that's happening, we, this is happening. This Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been in, instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos goes to Achaia, where Corinth is a city in Achaia, so he's in Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Remember, he promised to get back to Ephesus if God wills. Well, clearly he did. So he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Now, I always think that when I go through the book of Acts in teaching or preaching, I'm going to skip this section because it doesn't seem to me to be very much detail on exactly what we're to get out of this. So when I have a great desire to skip something, it's usually a check in my own heart that I shouldn't, that I should dig and dig and dig and dig. And I don't know if I've dug deeply enough, but I want us to ask the question, why is it here? Why did Luke put this here, these two situations uh, this one with this man, Apollos, and then the Ephesian 12, if you will. Why, why, why is, are these two uh, stories, accounts, here? Uh, it, it could be that just Luke is telling us history. He's telling us uh, what's taking place. But, but he leaves so much out. I mean, he, he left out a great trip that Paul must have taken from Antioch all the way to get to Ephesus. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fur piece. That's a, that's a lot of territory that he covered. And we don't hear anything about that except that he did. And then, but, but somehow, having this man Apollos in Ephesus is important for us to know. Now, it's probably important as well because Apollos becomes a very significant figure in the early church. We don't read a lot about him, but we read enough about him to know that he was a a dear companion of Paul at certain instances. We know he had a huge impact in Corinth. In fact, there were some, if you read the first letter to the Corinthians by Paul in chapter 1, there are some who identified themselves as of Apollos, that, that they followed his teaching. And so he was very significant in their lives. So, so we know that. So it gives us some background on Apollos, but quite frankly, 
We can do without that. I mean, we, we catch a, enough about how significant he is in the other writings, just in the few sentences about him. So, so it, it seems to be a little overkill to, to, to put this in about Apollos. And then, why these people in, in Ephesus? Um, why them? We know that Apollos in Ephesus is from Alexandria. That seems significant because Alexandria was a very significant place. It was a place of great learning. So it had this intellectual um, kind of uh, ethos about it that if you said you were from, 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 from Alexandria, it probably meant that you were well educated. Not only that, but the Jewish people, the Jewish community in Alexandria were greatly blessed because a couple hundred years before, there was a translation done of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. Now, the Old Testament Hebrew originally, of course, was written in Hebrew, various dialects of Hebrew, because it was written over such a long period of time, but but Hebrew. But because Jewish people has dispersed from Jerusalem and even Israel uh, and into Greek-speaking places, there are a number of Jewish people over the centuries who didn't speak Hebrew. And so there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, so the Greek-speaking Jews could, could, could read it and understand it in the same way that, that, uh, that, 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 that the Bible's translated into English, so we can read it. And so that was very helpful, and that happened in Alexandria. So the Alexandrian Jews um, were, uh, found a great benefit to that. So not only was Apollos likely to be well-educated, but he was also likely to be well-educated even in the Scripture. And we find that, that here. Notice how, how Luke speaks of him. It says that, that uh, um, he was a man competent in the Scriptures, that he was an eloquent man, that is, he spoke very, very well, no doubt even powerfully, because he said in verse 25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. So very passionate. So he's this very intelligent man, very eloquent, very articulate, spoke very well, and had deep, deep passion towards this as well. Uh, and it says he, he, he taught accurately the thing, things concerning Jesus. But, but then Luke says, though, and that's a huge though, Right? If it were a but, it would be a big but in all of this. But, though, except um, he knew only the baptism of John. What we find then with the Ephesian 12 is a similar thing. A little bit different because Paul comes upon them. They don't have all the accolades that Apollos had about being well taught and all of that. But still, there was something about them that gave Paul the impression, on the one hand, perhaps disciples, perhaps not. And so he asked them a very significant question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, tell me about your baptism. They said, we only know the baptism of John. So there's something about the baptism of John that connects these two accounts. One with Apollos, one with this group of of men from Ephesus. Um, and, and there was something then missing. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the two, the couple, that meet Apollos. And they listen to him teach. Uh, it's quite surprising, verse 26 in chapter 18. Uh, they reads, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, 
to be honest with you, when I read that, it doesn't seem to fit the rest. Because the, the build-up to Apollos is that he's the great speaker. He's eloquent, he's well-trained, he knows the scriptures, he speaks accurately concerning Jesus, though, only the baptism of John. So somehow, some way, Aquila and Priscilla see something deficient in, in Apollos. Uh, could have been uh, some of the message. John uh, spoke, John the Baptist, spoke of repentance. In fact, take a look at, at how Luke describes the work of John the Baptist in Luke in chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 in the middle of verse 2. Speaking of John the Baptist. It says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. As Paul put it concerning John's ministry, he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So you understand where John fits in the whole history of this thing. He's, he's kind of like the last of the Old Testament prophets because he comes in their tradition and he comes to Jewish people primarily in this situation and he's calling them to repentance and to be baptized, that is, as a sign of cleansing. Sign of repentance, sign of cleansing. And so um, he comes to them to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, to say, listen, you've been living wrongly, and now the Messiah is coming. And so enter into him. But remember, John the Baptist died before the crucifixion of Jesus. John the Baptist died before the resurrection of Jesus, obviously, before the ascension of Jesus, before the coming of the Spirit. And so he was simply pointing to all of this. So those people who would identify themselves with John would identify themselves with a heavy dose of repentance and an anticipation of the coming of the Christ who would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, which was John's language concerning Jesus. And so, Apollos, no doubt, had a heavy dose of repentance. Correctly, rightly, strongly, eloquently. But did he see the whole picture? Had he, had he run the gamut? Surely, would he not have heard of the crucifixion of Jesus? It's hard for us to fathom lack of information, lack of communication. But in these days, there was a tremendous lack of information. Uh, they didn't have even old ways of communicating like telegraph or telephones with landlines or uh, newspapers or radio shows or television or internet or any of that. It's not like today when whatever happens, you know, a minute ago is now being broadcast all over the world. We don't know exactly what Apollos knew. Was there something in his messages? Was there something in his manner, on how he did it. Maybe his eloquence had gotten to him and so he was prideful. But somehow it, it, it came across to Priscilla and Aquila, this isn't the way to present this truth. So let me give you the more accurate way of doing it in humility. 
Perhaps it is that he, as the Ephesian 12, hadn't really heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the same way that, that others had heard and experienced. And thus, they explained to him the work of the Spirit and how it is the Spirit was at work in him and through him and all of that. And bring, to bring him to a measure of humility even as he spoke. And he realized that his eloquence and his power wasn't his, but it came from God. And it very well then may have been that. We, we simply don't know. It's all speculation. Luke doesn't tell us what it was that they caught in the teaching of Apollos that they needed to correct or needed to bring to completion or fulfillment. With these Ephesian 12, it's a little bit different. Uh, we, again, we don't have this deep description of their spirituality or of their eloquence or of their power or any of that. But you see, for Paul... It was unthinkable that a disciple of Jesus wouldn't have received the Holy Spirit. Uh, We get that from Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. In Romans in chapter 8 and verse 9, we read this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. He's speaking to believers. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. Uh, Paul develops that in Romans chapter 8 a good bit, but but that's the principle. And you get the sense that that's running through Paul even now. And so he asks this sort of diagnostic question of them. Uh, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or have you received the Holy Spirit in your believing? Um, And they said, no, we've never even heard about the Holy Spirit. They had heard about Jesus from John, no doubt. They had entered into this baptism of repentance through John. They were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Who knows what they had heard about the coming of Jesus. But they hadn't heard clearly that Jesus had ascended and sent his spirit. And so for Paul, it was a no-brainer. So what does he do? He speaks to them then about Jesus. So John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So he speaks to them, you get the sense... Uh, about Jesus. On hearing this, then they were baptized. Obviously, they, had, they believed in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Thus, in one sense, for Paul and for them, saying, Yes, okay, now clearly you've received the Holy Spirit. This is the way he had come in other situations. All right. So now, why is this here? Why is it that we're spending time thinking through these two situations? I think this. I think it's because Luke doesn't want us for a moment to forget that none of this, in terms of this working of the growth of the church, the spreading the gospel, the manifestation of the kingdom, none of this happens without the Holy Spirit no matter how eloquent a person may be, no matter how strong he may be, no matter how fervent in spirit he may appear, no matter what kind of grasp intellectually he may have on the scriptures, none of this happens without the Spirit of God. And that's true for every single believer in Christ. Because you see, we're called to be witnesses. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to his disciples about being his witnesses? He calls them to be his witnesses, but he says, wait, don't start now. Something needs to take place before you start this. For instance, Luke in chapter 24. 
verse 45. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, clearly before his ascension. Luke 24, 45. Then he, the he there is Jesus, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't start now. Because you see, there is a sense in which if we start without the Spirit, you either become prideful thinking it's all of you, or you become discouraged realizing that there's no way you can complete the task. And so in that historical moment, before the coming of the Spirit in the way that he came in Pentecost to glorify Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus, uh, he says, wait, you can't do this without the Spirit. And again, we read that in Acts in chapter 1 as Luke kind of ties his two volumes together in Acts 1 verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, you've got to wait. You can't go on without the Spirit. Because the Spirit, you see, is the very promise of the Father. We anticipate, as we read through the Scripture, and rightly so, of the Messiah who is to come. But we wasn't, mustn't miss in all that Messiah talk and all that Christ talk and all of that. We mustn't miss that there's a promise of the Father concerning the Spirit as well. Not simply concerning this one who's going to come and save his people from their sins, but the Spirit who's going to come and be poured out upon his people so that they may enter in and walk in and give witness to what this Christ has done. It isn't an either or. It's a both and. It's all of the above. The gospel, and I do this all the time, if someone would bump me out of a sleep and said, what's the gospel? My initial response probably would be, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that isn't wrong. But he died on the cross for our sins so that we might receive the promise of the Father and be his witnesses. It's all of that, you see. And so the promise of the Father, you remember, uh, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the Spirit who's to come, and who's going to come like water on parched ground. Prophet Ezekiel speaks of this Spirit who's to come, and he says, take out our heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, that he would put his Spirit within us and enable us cause us really to walk in his ways. The the prophet Joel speaks of the spirit who's going to be poured out in the last days upon all flesh and and, and people, men and women, children will prophesy that is speak the truth of God in the spirit. Jesus says that he's going to baptize not with water but with the Holy Spirit and with fire so that when the spirit comes there's cleansing 
And when Jesus meets with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed and he's telling them that he's going to leave them, that he's going to go, he reminds them that he's not going to leave them alone, that he's going to come with them in some sense. And the way that he's going to be with them is by his spirit. And so his spirit is going to come and, and, and mediate or bring to his people the very presence of God, the very presence of Jesus. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples on that night, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He said, that Spirit will be so close to you as to be able to say that he's in you. He's dwelling in you. God is that close to you. He isn't far away. He's right in your midst. He's right in you. Jesus would say this, But when the Helper comes, this is chapter 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am leaving you in one sense, but in another sense, I'll always be with you. Because the Spirit will be with you constantly, bearing witness of me to you, convincing you that I'm with you convincing you that I'm for you, convincing you that I've forgiven you, convincing you that I'm empowering you, convincing you that that you can do this mission in me that I've called you to do. And so he's saying, I want you to, that he will bear witness about you. And then he says, and you also will then bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. This, the work of the Spirit, Jesus goes on to say this in chapter 16 uh, in verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. There's a sense in which if, if, if Jesus were giving them a quiz at the moment and said to them around that first communion table, which would be better, me to stay with you or me to leave? I think all the, his disciples would have said, it would be better, Jesus, if you stayed. And Jesus would go, you don't win the car, right? That's the wrong answer. It's better that I go away. Because in his going away, of course, he'll go through his death. He'll be exalted in his resurrection. He'll be ascended in, in, in this great, uh, great glory. And he will send his spirit. So that then, He'll be in them, with them that intimately. He says, but if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. He says, they'll need to be convinced of their sin. If ever they're to come to faith. concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. In other words, because he ascends and he sits enthroned in glory, his being raised and being ascended is proof of his righteousness. That God has said, yes, he's the righteous one. He doesn't deserve to be dead, so he's raised. But in his dying he paid for your sins. And now he's raised to rule on high in righteousness. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Indeed, he is. 
Because on the cross, the scripture says that Jesus, the very power of God, disarmed him and humiliated him. And so all of that is true. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, I have many things to say, but you can't hear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so you see, Luke, in writing Acts, doesn't want us to forget that. He wants to to continue to to hammer home time and time again. And we read this, therefore, periodically throughout the book book of Acts. the, The work of the Spirit. And he says, even if you're like an Apollos, you still need the Spirit of God. And even if you're like these Ephesians 12, Ephesian 12, mulling around, wondering about Jesus, what you need is the Spirit of God if you're to be real, true, effective witnesses. Because you see, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. To, to, to overcome that sin in us, to really see it, it requires a work, a work of the Spirit of God. And if we're to witness of Jesus, if we're to witness in such a way that makes disciples, if we're to witness in such a way that makes disciples, teaching people to obey all that Jesus has commanded, then our sin needs to be overcome. And who can do that? Only the Spirit of God. That's why Ezekiel gives us that great word that that God will take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, put his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. When Jesus speaks to that teacher of the law named Nicodemus, he reminds Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And of course, Nicodemus didn't get that. How could he? His only reference point of birth is physical birth. But Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical birth, I'm talking about spiritual birth, something that the Holy Spirit must do to get you to see it, to get you to to realize it, to get you to enter into the kingdom, requires a work of the Spirit of God. So Luke doesn't want us for a moment to forget that. He doesn't want for a moment for us to forget the way that we entered into the kingdom of God. And he doesn't want us for a moment to forget the way that others will enter. And so he's saying it's of the Spirit. Whether you're Apollos or whether you're this other... It's of the Spirit. You need the very Spirit of God. In fact, I think when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, uh, we have a letter in the New Testament by that name. Uh, It was probably a circular letter. probably began in Ephesus. But you get the sense, if you understand what happened in Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19... You get a sense that when Paul was writing to that church, he was writing with with that in mind. Because there's so much of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians that that you think, okay, they really must have needed some word about the Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with this letter of Paul, if you're not, memorize it. It's just, it will bless you. But read it so many times that you're very familiar with it. Um, But he begins in the book of, of Ephesians, this letter, Uh, by telling them that they're in Christ. And they're in Christ, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he's in Christ because of the work of the Spirit who, who brings them. The Father chooses them and places them there, but they come to know that because of the work of the Spirit. And then he says to them in verse 13, in him, 
It's Ephesians 1. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, that is in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you see, it's the Holy Spirit who seals us. Now, what does that mean? When I think of a seal, I, I think of one of those bags that has a little thing in you, you know? I can never get that really right. Um, and I know that because when I put whatever's in there in the fridge, it kind of comes open uh, and it gets messy. But, but I think of that as a seal. But that's not the kind of seal, keeping something in, that um, Paul is talking about here. This word for seal is, is like the, the kind of seal that you would put uh, on, an, on a letter to authenticate its, um, um, the truth of it. If, if, for instance, if, if I got a letter and it said, from the governor, I wouldn't believe it. She doesn't write me much, uh, you know. But if it had the governor's seal on it, to, this is the governor's seal, this is really the governor's, I would tend then to believe it. And when the Holy Spirit is our seal, when we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, God is saying to us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is what authenticates you as being mine. Paul, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not of Christ. If you have the Spirit of Christ, then you belong to Him. And so it's the Spirit that's that authenticating reality in our lives. And then he goes on to say this, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. He's saying, in a sense, that the Holy Spirit is our seal, authenticates, yes, this we really do belong to God, we really are His, but then also to say that the Spirit is our deposit, guaranteeing all that God has promised. You know that when you go to buy something, you don't, you're not going to be able to pay it off all at once. Uh, you're often required to put a down payment. And you're required to put enough of a down payment down to give the seller enough confidence that you're actually good for the rest. Uh, That's what God, in a sense, does here. Very crude illustration, but Paul's using it, saying that the Holy Spirit is this deposit guaranteeing that everything that God has promised will come to pass, will happen in our lives. We will receive. And so not having the Spirit means we have no assurance. Not having the Spirit means we don't belong to Christ. And so Paul is saying this is the importance of the Holy Spirit. And I think Luke, as he writes to us in Acts, saying, I don't want you to forget this. It's the work of the Spirit that brings people to faith, that brought you to faith. It's the work of the Spirit that authenticates that you really belong to God. It's the work of the Spirit that is the very guarantee of all that. And then Paul goes on, and I won't read all of Ephesians to you. I'll leave you that to do this week, but I'll read some of it anyway. But in in, in these opening verses, beginning in verse 17, for instance, Paul says... um, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His greatness, His great might, that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly, in the heavenly places. He's saying, listen, it's a work of the Spirit that, that opens your eyes. Um, you'll notice in the bulletin, before I read the scripture, is this little line that says, the prayer of illumination. That's a prayer 
that the Holy Spirit will open our spiritual eyes, will help us to see, will bring light to this, because we realize that we live in spiritual darkness apart from Christ, and so it's the work of the Spirit that opens our eyes to see that. Luke doesn't want us to forget that as he's writing this narrative. He's saying no matter how eloquent you are, no matter how powerful you may look, no matter how well-schooled in the Scripture you are, never forget that it's the work of the Spirit, that without Him you would have nothing of Christ in you. He goes on, chapter 2, in verse 22, this sentence in Ephesians. Uh, Paul writes, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is dwelling in you. And the Spirit of God is working that in you. You might remember that when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and I know I'm skipping around a lot today, but that's all right, at least for me. First Corinthians in chapter 3, uh, Paul speaks to us like this, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, do you not know that you, that is all of us together collectively, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? That's a work of the Spirit to join us together and then to live among us as His people. We must never forget that. Then in chapter 3, in Ephesians, verse 14, Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth and and in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that he may grant you to be strengthened, strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you say, I think Christ always dwells in my heart. But that little word for dwell in this passage is an emphasis on the permanence of that dwelling. This isn't just a visitation of Jesus. This is a making his home in you. This is a real settling into you, and he does that by the Spirit. And and so we need to be strengthened inside so that Christ may dwell. That is, we need more than just information. We need strength for Christ to dwell in us. Because you see, when Christ dwells in us, when he when he moves in, he remodels. Right? He in fact it's there used to be, I shouldn't confess, that I've ever watched HGTV. But I have. And I have a wife. I'll blame it on her. But there used to be this show about remodeling. It always made me laugh. Because they would take like an 800 square foot house and remodel it into a 6,000 square foot house. So that the old house was basically the closet to now the master bedroom kind of thing. And they would call it a remodel. And I would go, this is not a remodel. This is a demolition. I mean, this is a whole new deal. It always just made me laugh. But that's the kind of remodeling that Jesus does. When he comes to dwell, you see, he comes to take out everything that doesn't suit him. Everything that isn't consistent with him. Everything that isn't pleasing to him. And so when the Spirit of God, he says, says, I'll strengthen you for that kind of work. Because what he's going to bring in the context of your, your life, in the truest and richest and most profound sense, 
is love. Love for God and love for each other. Which means he's going to have to take out pride, selfishness, right? unforgiveness, all the grudges, right? all the animosity, all the I'm really better than you kind of things, all the I really deserve more than this, all that that's too big a sacrifice for me to make for you. He's going to have to rip. Rip is really the right word, isn't it? Rip all of that out of us. That takes more than just information. It takes more than just a notice saying this is going to happen. It takes strength to persevere and to be a part of that because he calls us, as he says in chapter 4, to take off the old self and put on the new. This isn't the kind of thing we just kind of lay in a, in a Holy Spirit-induced coma and then wake up sometime later having it all done. No, 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 no. This is, this is something that's working in us, through us, in us, by us. We were commanded to shed. And we understand we're shedding these things by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul puts it like this in Romans in chapter 8, verse 13. He says, If you will live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now notice the juxtaposition of you and spirit in there. It isn't again just this induced Holy Spirit coma and you wake up and all is fine because he sort of did it all unknown to you. No. You're going to do this by the Spirit depending on on him. Listening to him, reading from the scripture on him. How is it that we're to live? And then, with what feels like every ounce of our being, ripping these things out of our lives, denying them to ourselves. Jesus said this. He says, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Now for us, when we think of crosses, we almost think of decoration. Right? We think of earrings, we think of necklaces, think of windows. And we should. It's nice to have these reminders around us. But in the days of Jesus, nobody thought of a cross as something they would ever dangle from their ears or from their neck or in a painting because it was despicable. It was horrible. It meant death. So Jesus said, if you want to follow me, what you have to do every day is there's got to be crosses in your life where you're putting to death stuff that isn't consistent with me. And so as Luke brings us through Acts and reminds us of the place of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. If we're going to witness of the truth of Christ, we have to walk with Christ. If we're going to walk with Christ, then it means that he has to be active in our lives. And, And Luke is saying, remember, this is about the Holy Spirit. He's in you and with you. And will strengthen you for this. Not just give you the information, he will. But to strengthen you uh, for this. And then we go on. He says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit uh, in the bond of peace. This, this unity that the Spirit has brought among us. We're to continue to foster in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing within each other. And we'll have the strength to do that in humility. To 
set aside our pride and selfishness and gentleness to set aside our harshness and patience to set aside our anxiety when we're the only ones who know the right way to go and no one seems to be getting there with us and in bearing with each other in love. And he says he'll gift us that we might mature, that we might take off the old and put on the new, that we might be imitators of Christ. So important is all of this that Paul summarizes it in verse 18 of chapter 5 in Ephesians and says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's a continual thing. That's a thing that never is to stop. That's a thing that we're to to yield to the Spirit all the time in recognition that He is with us, that He is leading us, and He is working in us. And therefore we're to work out then this salvation that God has worked in. And this will manifest itself in how we address each other and how we worship and how we submit to each other. It will be evident in our marriages. It will be evident in our families. It will be evident in our work. And he'll enable us to stand even before the evil one because it's the spirit who will teach us the truth so we can have the belt of truth, who will share with us concerning righteousness so we will be able to put on the breastplate of righteousness, who will teach us the gospel, who will grant to us faith, who will give us his word, And he will enable us to pray. For us. And for our salvation. In the deepest and richest sense of that word. We mustn't ever forget. About the Holy Spirit. That of course doesn't mean we. De-emphasize Jesus. For that would be. Disappointing to the Holy Spirit. Because his job is to emphasize Jesus. And so when we're talking about Jesus, we desire or we please the Holy Spirit. But again, we must realize, must never forget that all that we have, all that we know of Jesus, all that we trust in Jesus, and all the work of of what Christ has done in us is because of the Spirit of God in us. It's not our own doing. It's because of him. And that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he he broke it. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, as we think of Jesus and we think of him rightly, and we really get it, we really understand, and we really say, yes, I understand my own sin. Yes, I understand that Christ is the righteous one. And I understand that the righteous one stood for me, that he may take my sin and I may receive his righteousness. And now he rules and reigns in glory. I really get that. Do you know why you really get that? Do you know how you really get that? Do you know the, the, the source of your getting that? It's the Spirit of God. And now the Spirit of God in you is enabling you to take off the old, put on the new, walk with Christ, be led, be His witnesses, to be sealed in Him, to have assurance that you really do belong to Him. And that one day you'll be with him in glory. And as I come to this passage, and I, I, I'm kind of, 
I read what Luke is telling me about Apollos in the Ephesians 12, and I'm thinking, what's the big deal here? <laughs> the big deal? The person, the work of the Holy Spirit of God in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, I pray, don't ever let us forget that our lives in you are the result of your gracious calling, your gracious choosing, your gracious sending of our Lord Jesus for us and the coming of the Spirit to open our eyes, to change our hearts, to give us faith, to enable us to walk, to strengthen us for this journey, to enable us to be witnesses so that we needn't fear, we needn't shy away, we needn't, sh- we needn't take steps back from this truth, but, but, but Father, we can live it and we can speak it and we can share it because we know that it's the work of the Spirit of God. And I confess that uh, we can't feel Him particularly, though there are feelings associated with knowing that He is with us. But I pray even now that you would grant to us assurance that by believing in Jesus as believers in Jesus, that we've received the Holy Spirit. And that even as we lay out the difficulties of our lives, we lay out the calling that we have to be witnesses, that we would understand that even now we're being strengthened by your Spirit within us to live, to walk, to witness. So I pray you take this bread and this juice and, 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 and separate it in such a way uh, that would enable us to see Jesus, to fellowship with him because of the presence of the Spirit among us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This table, I remind you, is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who have received the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how do I know if I've received the Holy Spirit? And, of course, the question is, what do you think about Jesus? Do you understand your own sin? That you have no hope except in the sovereign mercy of God as he's offered to us in Jesus as the gospel comes to us, this good news. It says that he's died for us, that he's risen, that he's ascended, that he sent his spirit to live in and among us, that we might believe and walk in him. That's true for you. If you know that's true for you, let me ask you to come. Uh, These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip dip it in the cup, Eat it, let resonate in your mind. I believe in Jesus. I've received the Holy Spirit.
he is in me. Please come.